understanding one's power is something I ask of the people who I criticize, you know? But how do I navigate my own power I now have? How do I hold myself accountable um, in managing, in, in being graceful about that power? I don't have the answer for that, but it is something I'm thinking about. I mean, I'm still kicking upwards, but... This is what we do, a show about how we, you and me, can have a positive impact on the world, live with integrity, and embrace the complex questions of our time without losing neither ourselves, our minds, nor our hope in the process. My name is Lucy Kamara, and I'm your host. Let's begin. Welcome and welcome back to What We Do, the podcast where we diversify our understanding of sustainability. I've been talking a lot recently about this phrase, diversifying our understanding of sustainability, diversifying sustainability. And I wanted to share a little bit of what I mean by it. The first part of it is about people. It's about representation. It's about giving a platform and shining a light on the work of people of color, non-binary people, gender minorities, women of color, people with disabilities, those who we don't usually think of first when we think of the people in the sustainability conversation, the people who have impact, the people who can make change. So that's the first aspect of diversifying sustainability. And if you know anything about me, you know this is the aspect that this is one of the things that I care about the most in life. The second part that I thought maybe wasn't as straightforward is the idea of diversifying what sustainability means. When we think of sustainability, when we talk about sustainability these days, we talk about climate change. We talk about the environment. We talk about global warming. We talk about the rainforest. And we need to talk about all of this when we talk about sustainability because we need to make changes and have policies that protect the environment, the rainforest, the, the ecosystem, and that make them last because we need them to last because without them, there's no us. But sustainability, first and foremost, means making things last, making things durable, making things solid and beneficial, reducing harm, making things flourish. It means shifting from a short-term mindset to a long-term one. And this is why, even though on this podcast so far... We have stayed pretty close to our first level understanding of sustainability, whether it is when we talked about plant-based sustainable hair extension with Cosima Richardson. Yes, we talked about having a lesser impact on the environment, but we also talk about catering to the black communities, bringing awareness on the toxicity of so many 
cosmetic targeted to black communities and having a conversation on how do we change that? How do we make this industry sustainable in a way that it can provide good to people without hurting the planet and without hurting anyone? Today, I'm talking to Lisa Lynn Dunbar. Lisa is a hospitality expert. She has worked in the restaurant industry for over a decade. And she has been extremely vocal in changing this industry and highlighting the violence, the abuse, and the darkness behind the Michelin star restaurants and the high gastronomy of the world. Lisa has worked in Copenhagen, in some of the best restaurants of the world. She shares with me her experience. She shares with me some of her trauma and she shares with me her dedication to making lasting change. I love this conversation because having had my own decade working in restaurants, bars and cafes and having my own share of horror stories, I could absolutely relate. And I was so inspired and invigorated by witnessing Lisa's work, Lisa's words, and seeing the future she is building. This conversation, to me, makes sense in a sustainability context, because food and drinks and restaurants and public spaces are fundamental to our societies. They bring joy, they bring work, they bring amazing experiences and amazing opportunities for creativity. But a lot of terrible things have happened since the beginning of this industry. And it is time that we actually question how we can make this cornerstone of our societies beautiful, safe, respectful and sustainable. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Lisa Lind Dunbar. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for joining me on What We Do. I'm really glad to have you here. Um, would you like to introduce yourself the way you want to be introduced in general like who are you and what is it that you do well this has been a changing title so to say or kind of understanding of myself because and what I do because it was never premeditated and two years ago when I sort of started speaking out about my experience of working in the restaurant industry I was you know a former waiter, a former server and restaurant man, well, manager. And then, well, gradually I took on the role of, um, well, becoming a sort of whistleblower, um, becoming an advocate for um, talking about the problems that so many restaurant workers, hospitality workers face. But today my, uh, my working title is Restaurant Work Culture Critic. I've also been a writer, I'm a for former waiter, as I said, but restaurant work culture critic in this context is, um, I think, is fitting. 
I live in Denmark. I live in Copenhagen. I live with uh, my partner in Nørrebro. I'm quite invested in politics when it comes to the labor market, Danish labor market, and just also the academic part, the intellectual part of discussing what work is in our lives. That's what's come to to be um, a big interest of mine and something that I'm still learning about and continuously discussing with friends and peers, with you and with other people who've had interest in my work with, um, I think, This past year, I've given interviews to about six different researchers who are doing research projects, either uh, nationally in Denmark or other places in the world, because they've found my name has come up um, in circumstances or conditions uh, that revolve around the restaurant industry and wine. Well, can you trace that interest for workers' rights? How far can you trace that? Was that something that was part of your childhood, that was part of the conversation with your parents? Is that something you've seen from from an early age or is that something that came two years ago, as you said? It's not something that has been a part of my upbringing or the household that I grew up in. Political conversations were not a part of um, my family. It was quite quiet when we had uh, our dinner. That's just that's just never been a problem. My parents didn't have, you know, have newspapers either. They, my mom is still not that invested in politics, if at all. My dad is a little bit more. He lives in the UK. Um, but I think a lot of people will say this maybe, but I understood myself and as a child who was very concerned with um, injustices. What was, un I've always been, um, Uh, somebody who would argue and fight for my case. And I think that was also a challenge for my parents. And I remember a family friend was certain that I would grow up to become a lawyer. I didn't want to do that because I think the education is ridiculous. But I think I've, I don't know, maybe also grown up with quite a lot of anger or an eye for this. Um, I've always been very aware of being uncomfortable, for instance, with just socially with if other people mentioned or commented on other people's appearance or bodies or um, would talk bad about someone else. I've never enjoyed that sort of, you know, somebody walking down the street and my, my parents would say, oh, God, they're really fat or something like that. And I have memories of being very uncomfortable with that sort of thing. And that's just, that's just a small memory but i i think i've been conscious of these unfairnesses and then i started very young working in the restaurant industry i was you know 14 and you started as dishwasher and then you do a bit of sort of sausage shop ice cream shop ice cream parlor that kind of thing and then waiter and so on and so on um and i wasn't if at all critical about the working conditions then you're so young you're very impressionable you're trying to figure out who you are who you want to be and for me finding a kind of purpose uh as a as a an adolescent um in that time in my life the restaurant industry is so impactful it's so powerful because you're shown a system you're shown an order of conduct that is set in stone and 
you know, y- your independence and your choices are kind of made for you uh, or your independence is, you know, taken away from you in a sense and the choices are made for you. And that was enchanting. That was, that felt safe actually. And that patriarchal attention was something that I wanted growing up. I think so many young women, especially look for that validation and also men you know, there's this saying that the body keeps the score and it's a saying because there's truth to it because that's what, it was my body that couldn't do it anymore that spoke to me, that gave me an understanding of, shit, this is so harmful. And that took 10 plus years. It took more than a decade for me to kind of tune into and it's not fun to accept that you've been treated, mistreated for a decade um, and, you know, subjected to wage theft and sexism and object, you know, objectification and all these things. And so tracing it back is something that, you know, the course of things um, for me has been in for myself tracing it back to the beginning, but it didn't. My criticism didn't uh, come through before I left the industry and had a plan B in studying. And it was through studying, understanding, reading texts about capitalism, colonialism, intersectionality, um, white supremacy, patriarchy, all of these, you know, I'm just like kind of name dropping now, but so many different texts about this that I could use my own lived experience to, I used that when I read those texts and suddenly I could see, fuck, this is a whole system that is so corrupt and so malicious and so dehumanizing. And that's why I became ill. So that's where I can trace it back to. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, they, I had a, I have a couple of questions. So you started at fourteen. I didn't even know that was legal in Denmark <laughs> because that's quite early. Yeah, but it, it's a it's a youth job. Mm-hmm. So there's there's there are rules about that. So you're not allowed to work that many hours a week. I think it's maybe eight hours a week. I can't. I'm actually not sure now that you ask me. But yeah, that that is allowed. And I mean, when you start working in such a such an industry so early, did you feel like you had people to, to who had your back, or did you get any mentorship as well, or were you kind of thrown into uh, the devil's den? The industry work environment, and you would maybe agree to this, is um, is dominated a lot by people who are higher up in the hierarchy who want to take on this patriarchal type of figure of 
you know, it's gaslighting really what's going on in a big sense. Like I'll, you know, I'll take care of you. We're a family. Um, giving, like doing, actually putting a lot of pressure on the workers and demanding things and not caring about who they are. And then afterwards in the aftermath, almost kind of, you know, love bombing or that kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. And so I remember my first job there, the, the head chef would, you know, pay me attention, wasn't, which wasn't a lot, to be honest. And I would just, you know, cherish that, keep that yeah. too. And I remember that also from future jobs that 90%, 95% of the time I would be put down, mocked, you know, told off. I was never, it was, I was never, it was never sufficient. And then once in a while I would just get that good job. And then that would like make my month in a sense, which is nuts. So no, I think everyone's kind of, you know, left to fight for themselves. Mm. You said that's what got you ill. And I was wondering if you, if you would be comfortable talking a bit more about that. Yeah, I, um, thanks for asking. I, I am. It's also something I've uh, written about in my essay and um, at other points. And the thing is that I was about, it, it was in the beginning of my 20s, even like 22, 23, uh, up, I don't know. It was for a good few years that I didn't, really like increasingly didn't really have a life outside my work it was difficult to have so many working hours every day and the more you work it's that's just not those hours it's also how much you need to rest so for every extra hour extra two hours extra three hours you need to rest more and so my whole life was really revolving around my work and that just snowballed and the effects that has is isolation I didn't really have much else going on outside of my work and when I finally had days off it would be catching up with colleagues and drinking a lot and that was also a part of the whole mixture self-medicating with alcohol when you have a shift of 12 hours and you're basically running a lot of that on um stress hormone adrenaline to get you through because you're there's such an um sense of urgency the second seating's coming you need to get you need to get we need to do we need to fill up the fridge there's always like there's never a minute even to almost like fucking go to the toilet And the bodily reaction for a lot of us was like, fuck, we need a drink. And then one drink becomes two drinks. And then coming home, I couldn't go straight to bed. I had to, I hated, I hated coming home because I couldn't relax because everything was like running. Like what, what happened? What did they do? do What they say, Mm. uh, this is happening tomorrow. And then a lot of the time as well, I would have, um, work stress nightmares, you know, thinking about what could go wrong, what happened, waking up, and then basically 
15 minutes before my shift started going to work. And, you know, that would just be every day. Um, and so my body, you can, you, you don't need to be, you know, a doctor or any type of physician to know that that's not sustainable. And I just, I just started developing anxiety. I became depressed was drinking way too much, like drinking every day. I I remember two years ago, this is 2024, yeah, two years ago, I had a period of a month where I didn't drink. And I was saying to myself, I think this is the longest. It was even, maybe it was even two weeks, three, something. I think this is the longest I've gone since I was 22 without a drink. I just couldn't do it anymore. It was especially the mental, the mental part and experiencing insomnia as well. And it's taken me, it's only just recently that I've repaired my relationship with sleep. And it, I'm st it's still, that, that trauma is still, I don't like going to bed. There's still something of that. I don't have a good relationship with going to mm -hmm. sleep because for so many years, it was associated, my experience with, with that was just lying there mm -hmm. and having racing thoughts and worries about the next day. And, you know, friends and family as well missing me and also worried about my, um, my drinking. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing. And, I mean, that's the... the the sad truth is that it's it's so relatable and I, like I don't think I know anyone who's worked in this industry who has who cannot connect to connect and relate to what you just shared which is which is why we're having this conversation <laughs> because and, yeah. and 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 why you're doing the amazing work you're doing um so thank you so much for for being vulnerable and and sharing that because yeah, this has this is not normal. It's not because it's extremely common that it's normal. did you go and study? My two majors were social psychology of everyday life and cultural encounters. So um, yeah, that was that. I did that for three years and um, defended my bachelor thesis uh, a year ago. Congratulations. Thank you. I started studying in 2019 and nobody in my family's ever studied at uni. I had always avoided it because I thought I can't keep up with all the reading, all the, I'm not going to be good at this. But then I really was. I had such a success experience with that and it changed my life. I can even get emotional about it. It just, it changed my life forever. And I just feel so amazingly grateful that that was an opportunity that I had and that I 
I was just given such, it was just three and a half amazing years. And that was my ticket out, I felt. Um, But then Corona also hit in 2020. So half a year into my program, I just uh, left uh, my partner. I lived on my own. Everything had to be from home and it was lonely. And so in the summer of 2021, I just felt like I miss service. I miss having colleagues. I'm fucking bored out of my mind. <laughs> I I just want some fun. I just want a party. I just want to feel alive because I feel like I've been slowly like curling into this prune. And um, so I went back and took another job and did that for half a year. And I also left that establishment, that restaurant, because I was harassed and bullied by the owner. And that was, you know, September 2021. And then it was 2020, January 2022 when I came out with my essay and all of this started. This conversation is not the taboo has been broken and people are talking about the abuses and, you know, no man recipe and, and a lot of, I mean, especially in the, in the Copenhagen scene context, like you've had a lot to do with, with that, with that conversation going forward. So like, thank you for, for that. And, and I, I also, I want to ask because I, I hear in your story and your experience that like you've had to put yourself first and, Oh, I would have loved to see you at 14, <laughs> being that teenager who knows what she wants and who knows what what is unfair and what you deserve. And that, that like that kind of that's the kind of 14 year old that that we need more of. Um, and I think we are getting more of, actually. Um, but it's it's yeah. good to it's you know, it's about being a role model also for that. So so I think sharing your story that's why I like I like getting people's story from like an early age because I think that's also important um but so there's all the things that you've done to protect yourself to like respect yourself and that is first of all like a super strong thing to do and important things to do but you are today a hospitality and restaurant uh and social work expert um, is that something you want to do? Like, do you, do you see it as your work going forward to change the industry? Or was that, did that just come out actually by accident? Or do you see that as kind of a, a vocation? I wanted to write the essay already in 2019, but I didn't dare. It was a writing course. I actually took at Atlas Magazine in April 2019. We had to do homework, which was writing pieces or pitching pieces or discussing them and giving feedback and that kind of thing. And I realized I was, you know, people were pretty, like, had pretty high ed- educations. And I remember, <laughs> I remember one in the group that said the Anthropocene. And all everyone was like, yeah, yeah, talking about the Anthropocene. And I was sitting there like, I have no idea what that means. And I'm too afraid to ask what it means. <laughs> and there were other words like academic descriptions and like capitalist patriarchy. And I was just like, I'm not really sure I get what that means. Different things that I was just, I didn't know at that at that time. And so I felt really intimidated. And 
the what I thought that I could bring was I had this idea about maybe writing about my experience of working at Relay APS, which I did for close to three years under Christian Publisi. But I was still quite shy in putting it forward because I thought like these are really clever people who are like discussing philosophical topics about um, injustices on a global plan. And I was just like, this is kind of pathetic. But when I read a bit aloud of what I'd written, I could just see in all of their faces they were stunned because none of them had any experience with hospitality work other than maybe just a stint for a summer. And the the guy, Alexander, who ended up also being the editor of my essay when I published it in 2022, was saying, there's like something here. You need to pursue this. This is this is major because it's a whole system that is being praised and written about globally. And you're saying these things like this is so relevant not to like polish my own halo, but that was the response I got. And mirroring yourself in other people's, you know, reactions, because speaking about these things with peers and colleagues, that was everyday life, like nothing, no news here. That was just the way it was. And so experiencing outsiders interpretation or reaction to my my stories about my everyday life for so many years was kind of what sparked my understanding of okay this is meaty but I was I didn't dare I was too afraid I was too afraid of talking about it out loud I spoke about it extensively in private but I was shit scared of sharing it publicly I knew if I go out with this that's going to cause me, that's going to disrupt my private life to an, an extent that will be too damaging for me. It wasn't before December 2021 that I was at another um, magazine launch at Atlas. And I was just saying, you know, I'm independent now. I'm, I'm studying. I've got a plan B. I think I could be ready. <laughs> and then it was just about getting it out because I, I was fed up with like, no one is talking about this. Mm. So it's it wasn't about why, it was more about why not. I was also standing on the shoulders of a massive, incredible Me Too movement of people speaking out, women yeah. uh, and other gender minorities speaking out about their the violence they'd experienced under, you know, white supremacist patriarchy and all of this and that was also deeply inspiring so it it wasn't just for from me it was a, becoming a growing feminist having had a fucking enough of everything <laughs> and then also i have a theory i watched all i'd never watched game of thrones but i watched all nine series of game of thrones in december 2021 and i think <laughs> That made me very ready to be like, I was like prone, open to violence, <laughs> like in a different way. Where so are my dragons? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like literally, because yeah, nine seasons of that in such a condensed amount of time. So I have a theory that that was like why I was going in with like fire kicking in the door. And I was like, fuck you. This is my... This is my voice, this is my experience. What are you going to do about it? 
I wrote it in three days, the essay. And um, as I said in the beginning, what came after was never premeditated or planned. I couldn't have imagined ending up collecting between 700 and 1,000 unique testimonies from people who shared experiences similar to mine and even fucking far worse. And I, in many ways, I didn't want to do it. I had moments where the responsibility was very heavy. It was lonely as well. And I didn't have a manual to go after. I was also learning. I was finding my feet while doing it, but also feeling like this is important. And I think as a person, as a human, when you experience like something that resonates so incredibly deeply with so many people who would write me, it's it's impo- like it's, it was impossible for me to look the other way. Like I couldn't couldn't let it go, and I didn't want to let it go because this felt monumentous. Like this felt this was and is very important, and it's a long overdue conversation. And so it has become a vocation. Like as you asked, it it has. It's something that's become such an integral part of my life now. And I also recognize the power that I have, the name I have built for myself or other people have built with me or for me. Um, And that's still something that's sometimes confusing to understand that I'm not just something private has become something public and political and Mm -hmm. Um, that I've become a type of authority, a voice in this. And that's personally, that's a that's a funny experience that um, understanding one's power is something I ask of the people who I criticize, you know? But how do I navigate my own power I now have? How do I hold myself accountable um, in managing, in in being graceful about that power I don't have the answer for that but it is something I'm thinking about I mean I'm still kicking upwards but yeah that's what I love about this conversation is that it here we're talking about you know restaurant industry and an essay that you wrote but it's about finding someone's voice You've just started the Hospitality Workers Collective. And so I I was wondering if you could talk about like what you're working on and what, what kind of projects and, and um, in what 
format you you're doing the work that you've started now if you could talk a little bit about that volunteer work and working in a community and working with other people is really what changes things politics is not the way to go like trying to get the part like parliamentary involvement is not the way to go so hospitality worker collective it's still very young we're still in the beginning we've just sort of settled on a core team of people so um it's about uh the acknowledgement that there is such a massive lack of information so the gist the the mission the hopes of uh, HWC is to provide that lack of information to provide a resource library in time um, to provide uh, materials and different types of research and connecting to other similar organizations transnationally um, to have maybe an an answer email box sort of questions people are looking for in specifics and just having talks and meetings once a month where a specific topic will be explained and then because Instagram is massive it's such a powerful tool that so many people use it's such a great opportunity we will share posts about that topic with for instance what are your when you're sick, what are your rights in Denmark? Mm -hmm. Could be that. It could be what is a union. It could be parental leave. What does that mean? How do you do it? Who to contact? That kind of thing. So we're still figuring out how to do this, um, what steps to take, uh, how to communicate all of this. But I can only do so much. And I it was also it came. I wanted to start it because it came from a place where. I don't want to do this alone anymore. I can't be, you know, the only one in this choir mm -mm. and I shouldn't be. And so getting involved with other people who have different experiences, come from different backgrounds as well is important because this is not going to go anywhere if I'm the only one at pushing the agenda. It's about solidarity in the first place, about togetherness, about creating a community that is worker oriented. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, has very little value if it's just one person. I'm really looking forward to see how it grows and how uh, I saw that you you just got um, a, a location, a, yeah, a, a, a location, regular venue. Yeah, yes. congratulations! Yeah. Thank you. I mean, it would be amazing. Fast forward, if HWC was an organization with staff that could do it full-time um, and be paid for that where it could be an organization where people could where we could have cases that we could have people we're not going to be a union we're not going to replace a union but what we want to do is have a conversation about this work culture that is also that's always ever been been my been my focus really so to have a place where you can get any type of information that you can call and you could be advised if you should do this, uh, if you need to talk to someone. But could, it could also be amazing to have a type of in-house therapist, psychologist with a focus on mental health in the restaurant industry, with a focus on this type of work, um, to have a lawyer that could assist in, in different cases maybe as well, to have somebody who could help non-EU workers 
and that it would be free of charge for these people for people who do that because we do have a problem with the union um or people entering the union they should i can't force people but i really urge workers to enlist in a union i would maybe also like to write a book about all of this i don't really know what it should exactly consist of if it should be a collection of essays or if it should be an uh, a, an extension of my bachelor thesis which was about um the institutional maintenance of fine dining restaurants and chef hotels and um the brigade system it could also be that um i love it and i mean i really hope you write a book as well would anybody like even read it i don't know if if it would be oh yeah i don't know i feel like our conversation kind of rounded up pretty naturally um my favorite way to end uh, an interview is by asking what is something you wish people asked you more often that's a really good question i don't know that is a you really take, good question you can take a minute i think um I don't know. I f- I feel like people are generally quite interested in me. Um I I feel um I feel satisfied with uh with with the questions that I'm I'm asked you know in my everyday life. I uh that what a blessing. That's also a beautiful answer. I think it's a, it's it's a it's a privilege kind of like if you feel like people who you who ask you question ask you the question you want to be asked that's that's really cool maybe to answer I think my favorite question in plural are um some are the difficult ones to be honest go ask Lisa some difficult questions Thank you so so much for being so open and and sharing your story and for all the work you do the um HWC like the space and the therapist and stuff that's 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 amazing that's perfect. This podcast is created, produced and edited by myself, Lucy Kamara. You can find me on Instagram at Lucy out there, L-U-C-I-E-O-U-T-T-H-E-R-E. Please slide into my DMs and let me know what you thought about this episode. Let me know if you have any ideas, if it inspired any feelings and please don't hesitate to share it with your friends and with your family and especially people around you who feel like they don't relate to sustainability and who do not know how it can apply to their life. Thank you so much for tuning in. See you next time.